The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Big problems, simple solutions. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, August 22nd, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. In H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, it was a thing as simple as the common cold virus that struck down the seemingly unstoppable Martian machines bent on destroying everything on Earth. The people in that story had tried everything. They thought they could stop the destruction. They were wrong. Victory did not come from the mighty weapons of war they'd brought forth. It came from something they didn't expect, something basic and simple. It was the virus for the common cold, something that could sicken humans but bring down the thing that posed an even greater threat. War of the Worlds wasn't just a science fiction story. Quoting the H.G. Wells Society, the War of the Worlds is a critique of imperialism and man's hubris. In 2019 America, a seemingly unstoppable president has inflicted his own brand of destruction, inflicted his own kind of harm as recounted here individually each week. Nothing has slowed his march, not criticisms, nor court cases, nor protests, nor special counsels, not even so far impeachment. It may require something far simpler. The answer may be, it's the economy, stupid. The answer may be as basic as numbers, and the numbers are not good. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office reported politely that Trump's trade wars could hurt economic growth in the U.S. at a time people are worried about a recession. And then there's the federal government's budget deficit. The CBO's numbers show that that deficit's ballooning over the next 10 years by nearly a billion dollars more than expected. The deficit is, after more than two and a half years of a Trump administration, already projected to hit the trillion-dollar mark next year. Under the new CBO numbers, we're on track to stretch the deficit now to $2 trillion. The country wouldn't normally see that happen in the midst of economic growth, So-called emergency spending for Trump's border wall gets a lot of the credit, along with his tax cuts for the rich and the corporate, and a couple of budget deals he cut this year with Democrats in which both sides got more money. But this Congressional Budget Office report capped off a week of bad economic news for Trump, for whom the economy is his pride and joy. Trump and his people have spent nearly a week now telling us the economy is great and getting greater, despite the warning from most economists we're headed for another recession. That's not a tough prediction to make, since the U.S. has already survived 47 recessions. Since 1921, recessions have attached themselves almost exclusively to Republican presidents. A fairly reliable sign of a pending recession lies in what's known as the inverted yield curve. That's when the interest rates paid by long-term bonds are lower than the rates on short-term bonds. That's inverted from the norm. And whether we understand it or not, that inverted yield generally means a recession is about 15 months away. Last week's 800-point stock market drop happened because investors were worried about recession. Add in Trump's trade wars and worldwide economic nervousness, and the clock starts ticking. Publicly, Trump and his economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, are predicting economic growth in the face of these unpleasant predictions. I don't think we're having a recession, Trump told reporters Sunday, adding, we're doing tremendously well. Our consumers are rich. I gave a tremendous tax cut, and they're loaded up with money. But privately, Trump seems worried 
He's been on the phone with his own economic advisors, some of whom have told him what he wanted to hear, while others have told him they agree with that majority of economists. And quoting a Washington Post piece, Trump's economic brain trust consists of a guy who plays an economist on TV, a crank who was disowned by the economics profession, and the producer of the Lego Batman movie. The Trump administration is not preparing for a recession because it doesn't believe there'll be one, or at least that's what it says. Besides, preparing would be admitting there's a problem. Trump's often-on trade wars with China and his trade wars in Europe have created uncertainty in the world's markets. If the U.S. follows the recessions pending in China, Germany, and the U.K. and a half dozen other countries, it does so because of Trump's trade wars. Although the job market's been great, it's shown signs of slowing. Paychecks grew for a bit, but that growth has now slowed as well. And quoting a bank economist, the effects of the tax cut are fading. Even our strong consumer confidence numbers are starting to shrink. And next month, Americans, including Trump supporters, will pay more for basics at the store, meats, dairy, and garlic, much of which comes from China. Voters' grocery bills will go up next month because of Trump's trade war with China. Trump's tariffs are now expected to cost American households a thousand bucks a year. It's American spending that's keeping this country's, and to some degree, the world's economies afloat. Trump was reportedly considering an election year payroll tax cut to keep American spending and confident enough to reelect him. He was even reportedly considering reversing some of his tariffs, if that's what it would take to keep his precious economy afloat, even though he's pretty sure there's not a problem. Yesterday, he flip-flopped, saying there would be no tax cut. We don't need it. We have a strong economy, said Trump. Trump doesn't believe the warnings from economists, but is at the same time worried they might be right. Because the economy was the one thing that could get him reelected. It certainly isn't his charm. Many Republican voters cannot stomach him, but do because the economy has been good, at least to them. If Trump loses his good economy bragging rights, he loses a big part of his voter base, along with everybody else. If Trump is worried, it's more about the election than it is the good of the country. That political fear is the real reason he delayed new Chinese tariffs that were to have begun September 1st. The economy has been Trump's strongest political card. While his poll numbers are negative on every other question on the economy, he's gotten high marks so far. Under the mantra, the best defense is a good offense, Trump lashed out at China, the Federal Reserve Board, the media, and even economists, accusing the media and the number crunchers of trying to crash the economy so he won't get reelected. Yet another conspiracy theory from this president. He took to Twitter to declare with improperly capitalized letters that the U.S. has, quote, the biggest, strongest, and most powerful economy in the world. Washington Post sources say Trump is telling those close to him that the economists are politically biased against him and that they're fudging the numbers. The news media? Fake, of course. Trump doesn't like the numbers because numbers, unlike his closest advisors, don't always tell him what he wants to hear. Trump also doesn't like or believe the numbers he has seen from his very favorite TV channel. A Fox News poll found that nearly 6 in 10 Americans disapprove of Trump's handling of a trio of mass shootings. The Fox poll found that Trump's approval numbers have slumped in the past month. Nearly 6 in 10 find him divisive. But the unkindest cut of all for the president came in the head-to-head -head questions in that Fox News poll. 
The poll shows Trump losing not just to Joe Biden by a landslide 12 points, but also solid wins for Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Bernie Sanders. Harris would beat Trump by six points. Sunday night, Trump told reporters outside his New Jersey golf club, there's something going on at Fox, I'll tell you right now, and I'm not happy about it. He told reporters, I don't believe it, I don't believe it. Every place I go, we have lines outside. Trump will continue to believe the lines over the numbers. Trump says his campaign's internal polling shows him doing much better, like the economy. There are other reasons to be concerned about an apparently fragile economy. The New York Times reports that the Federal Reserve has been gradually making a string of rules changes that have eaten away at the protections put in place after Wall Street crashed our economy in 2008. The rules have been changed under pressure from those same Wall Street banks. You had two choices on Tuesday of last week. If you were a union worker at the Royal Dutch Shell plant in Monaca, Pennsylvania, you could either show up at 7 a.m. and stand around for hours and listen to the president without protest or resistance of any kind and get paid time and a half for the day. Or you could not attend the speech and give up all those sweet overtime hours. Those who would attend were told to bring their ID cards, quote, no scan, no pay. And it was made clear Trump didn't want any protesters there. The 5,000 oil workers who attended listened as he ran down the usual names on his enemies list, the media, the Democrats, and for good measure, the Academy Awards. Donald Trump was speaking to a paid audience. Quoting a union official, this was just what Shell wanted to do and we went along with it. Sometimes good things happen that keep bad things from happening. It appears law enforcement around the country this past week has prevented at least nine mass shootings. I've chosen not to recount them, but we learned in just one week that nine more planned mass shootings had been stopped before they happened. In nearly all of these cases, it was a social media post by the suspect that led authorities to make these arrests, and nearly all of the suspects had military-style rifles and high-capacity magazines. In the vast majority of these cases, the suspects were white men. Nine in one week. But CNN now reports there have actually been 27 of these arrests since that bloody weekend in El Paso and Dayton. There were, meanwhile, 53 new gunshot victims in Chicago over the weekend, and seven of them died. On Sunday morning, after 17 people were shot, one hospital stopped taking patients when it was filled to capacity for shooting victims. The nation continues to wait for action from Mitch McConnell's Senate, but there are still nearly three weeks left on Congress's August recess, and the consensus remains McConnell will do nothing when he returns to the delight of the NRA. Only one man could have possibly changed McConnell's mind, and that man has flip-flopped again and again. To the surprise of no one, Trump backed off his support of a background check bill after saying he was for it. Right after the Dayton and El Paso shootings, Trump talked of a great appetite for tougher background checks, meaningful background checks, he said. For a New York second, Trump was on the right track. It was a weakness in the existing background check laws that allowed young Dylan Roof to kill nine people in a black Baptist church in South Carolina four years ago. But this week, Trump jumped the track, 
abandoning his call for better background checks. Instead, he talked about reopening asylums for the mentally ill, adding that the nation has, quote, very strong background checks already. He now calls tougher background checks a slippery slope. We don't have to wonder where he heard such a thing. Last week, the president got a phone call from NRA leader Wayne LaPierre warning that Trump voters won't respond well to universal background checks that it could cost him re-election. He may have reminded the president that the NRA had pumped $30 million into his 2016 campaign. LaPierre fed Trump the NRA line that the problem is not guns, but mental illness. Once Trump took that position publicly after the massacres in El Paso and Dayton, federal health officials were immediately ordered not to contradict him on social media or anywhere else, according to the Washington Post. This week on Tuesday, it was Trump picking up the phone to call Wayne LaPierre. He was calling to assure the NRA chief that he was dropping his call for stronger background checks. The background checks, he told LaPierre, are off the table. Rest easy. And minutes after that call, Trump told reporters in the Oval Office, I have to tell you that it's a mental problem, as he made his strong background checks already claim and his cautioning that toughening those laws is a slippery slope. Virtually repeating the warning he'd gotten from the NRA, Trump said, a lot of the people who put me where I am are strong believers in the Second Amendment, and I am also. Democrats would, I believe, give up the Second Amendment, he said. Yesterday, Trump flip-flopped again, saying he would pursue closing loopholes in the background check laws and claiming that that's what he told Wayne LaPierre on Tuesday. Democrats, meanwhile, are keeping gun violence at the forefront. The Democrat-led House has already passed two gun control bills. The party's leading presidential candidates and its 2020 candidates for Senate are keeping the drive alive for sensible gun laws, laws that 90% of Americans now demand. Trump and the Republicans are siding with the NRA. That decision comes at a bad time. The gun group lost three more leaders this week, including a country singer, a former NASCAR driver, and the top lawyer on the NRA's lobbying team. They join at least four other NRA board members who've resigned in the past couple of weeks. NASCAR team owner Richard Childress and country singer Craig Morgan will no longer appear as they so regularly did on NRA TV. Childress, like the ousted Oliver North, was unhappy about the NRA donor money that was being spent on expensive suits for the NRA's Wayne LaPierre and the mansion the NRA had agreed to buy for LaPierre right after the gun massacre of small children at an elementary school called Sandy Hook. Multiple state and federal investigations of the NRA continue, but while the NRA weakens as a lobbying force in this country, it still has the attentive ear of Donald J. Trump, and the mass shootings continue. A Republican Florida congressman spilled the beans this week about his party's strategy for dealing with this pressure to pass gun laws. When the beans were spilled, the Tampa Bay Times was there to catch them, alerting voters not just in Florida but across the country about what they can expect. Republicans in Congress had, as they often do, shared among themselves a set of talking points on big issues. Much more so than Democrats, Republicans like to make sure their people are all on the same page, repeating the same mantras until those mantras stick in the minds of the public. Republicans don't expect their members in Congress to then pass along these private party memos to the public, 
But that's exactly what Palm Harbor, Florida Representative Gus Bilirakis did when he emailed a copy of that confidential talking points memo to his constituents. The memo tells Republicans in Congress that if they're asked about a connection between white nationalism and mass shootings, they should say that white nationalism is evil, but that, quote, we also cannot excuse violence from the left and Antifa. In other words, the GOP's marching orders include shifting the blame for the shootings to the political left to try to play down that whole white nationalism thing, to play down the fact that the El Paso shooter's creed had virtually quoted Trump and Fox News in his anti-immigrant beliefs. The Anti-Defamation League reports that in the past decade, more than 73% of the extremist murders in the U.S. were committed by right-wing extremists. In the past year, not one extremist murder was carried out by a member of the political left. And we now have proof that the Republican strategy is to avoid action on guns by blaming the gun violence on the left. We will find out on election day next year whether that worked. Democrats, meanwhile, will be helped by the March for Our Lives movement created by survivors of the gun slaughter at a high school in Parkland, Florida. Those students and former students have just unveiled a wide-ranging gun control proposal, and they're signing up young voters who are or will be old enough to vote on November 3, 2020. And they hope to make their sweeping gun law reform measures part of the discussion in the 2020 Senate and presidential campaigns. But they also plan to push their ideas into the White House and Congress. Parkland survivor and March organizer David Hogg is now 19 and commented for the first time after the recent shootings in Dayton and El Paso. Similar to a lot of the country, he said, I'm in a lot of pain right now. You see these shootings on TV every day and very little happening around it. It's been really hard for me and many of the other students to find hope. David says he believes the reforms being proposed by his surprisingly powerful group can help Americans unite against violence. The abject cruelty toward refugees and immigrants continues. The Trump administration is expected to issue a new rule tomorrow that would allow it to keep undocumented migrant families in custody indefinitely. The White House wants to cancel its agreement with the court that limited family detention to 20 days, extending indefinitely the amount of time it can keep children locked up for years, for however long it wants. The new Trump rule would allow immigration officials, and not Congress, to set the standards for the care of these children and families, and the new rules would shut out outside inspectors. No more pictures of kids in custody, just kids in custody. This move is not likely to set well with Judge Dolly Gee, who had already denied a Trump administration request to extend family detentions. Immigrant advocates say they'll see the White House in court. They will probably win. In the meantime, Trump's base is happy. In his continuing effort to make Congresswomen Rashida Tlaib and Elon Omar the face of the Democratic Party, Trump found new ways to take the U.S. presidency to a new low. This past week, Trump became the first president in American history to use foreign relations to punish a domestic political rival. At the same time, he may have destroyed a long-standing balance here at home when it comes to relations with Israel. In political battles over the past 60 years, whether candidates of one party were debating each other or a candidate from another party, the mantra was, I love Israel more than you do. 
Thanks to Donald Trump, the mantra is now, Republicans stand with Israel, Democrats do not. It isn't true, but repeat a thing often enough. Trump loves having a target for his base, especially if that target is Mexican or Muslim. Omar and Tlaib were popularly elected in their home districts and took the oath of Congress. But these two Muslim lawmakers support BDS, which stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions over Israel's aggression against Palestinians. And that makes them a target, someone to throw to the lions in red hats. Trump, who is more popular in Israel than he is here and knows it, used his political sway to get Israel to give him a hand. It was at Trump's urging that Israel announced the upcoming visit by Omar and Tlaib was off, that the congresswomen had been barred from entering that country. It is the U.S. Congress that gives Israel billions of dollars each year to keep its military razor sharp. The Democratic House majority is now reconsidering that funding. Congressional Democrats found themselves again being pulled to the left and in the unprecedented position of speaking against Israel. And it gave fuel to the argument that Israel and its current leader are racist and now bowing to the wishes of an American president who is widely considered racist. Although Israel backed down on its ban of Rashida Tlaib, she decided this wasn't a good time to visit her 90-year-old grandmother after all. Tlaib's grandmother says of Trump, may God ruin him. And that's when Trump found himself being called anti-Semitic. On the heels of being called a racist and a white nationalist, Trump uttered a centuries-old anti-Semitic argument that Jews cannot be trusted because of an overriding loyalty to their faith. He hasn't said that about any other religion, just the Jews. I think any Jewish people who vote for a Democrat, he said, show either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. American Jews, most of whom do vote Democratic, were insulted at being called moronic, but angered to have been called disloyal. That old thing again. In 2015, it was the old Jews and money thing. Trump told a Jewish audience at a fundraiser, you're not going to support me because I don't want your money, to which he added, but that's okay, you want to control your own politician. Hitler had also made references to Jews and loyalty. Hitler also praised automotive pioneer Henry Ford as his inspiration, which is why it's so unfortunate that yesterday Trump called Henry Ford legendary. Trump got only 23% of the Jewish vote in 2016 to Clinton's 71%. Trump, meanwhile, was proudly tweeting quotes from a conspiracy theory radio host who had called him the greatest president for Jews and declared that Israelis love Trump, quote, like he is the second coming of God and the king of Israel. The president of the United States then thanked the conspiracy talker for his, quote, very nice words. In talking to reporters about why he's doing better with China than previous presidents, he looked to the heavens and joked, I am the chosen one. He also joked yesterday about giving himself the Medal of Honor. If, indeed, he was joking. Maybe he's right. Maybe there is a mental problem. 
In one day yesterday, Trump had insulted a NATO ally because it wouldn't sell him Greenland, argued on behalf of Russia, doubled down on his anti-Semitic remark, basked in the praise of a conspiracy nut, and talked about awarding himself the Medal of Honor. In a 40-minute rant with reporters, Trump invoked Obama 20 times and reversed his position on both guns and taxes. We can no longer trust anything this president says. It's apparently time to stop listening to him and those who speak for him. Maybe you're thinking what Salon.com's Bob Seska is thinking. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. In less than 24 hours, Donald Trump said 76% of Jewish Americans are either morons or disloyal. He said Putin outsmarted Obama when Russia invaded Crimea. He canceled a summit in Denmark because the prime minister refused to sell him Greenland. He proclaimed himself to be the chosen one. When asked about background checks, he said, we have great mental illness. And the White House announced on Wednesday it plans to allow migrant children to be detained indefinitely. Is this a new record for the Mad King? It has to be. Oh, and by the way, That's not all. During another edition of what Stephen Colbert calls chopper talk, when the president engages in a pool spray with reporters on the South Lawn while Marine One idles loudly in the background, Trump blurted, we are looking at birthright citizenship very seriously. It's frankly ridiculous. This is all part of the new cruelty. Let's be clear about what he's pursuing here. The president wants to be able to deport children of immigrants, second-generation immigrants. He wants to literally expel American citizens from their own country because they're not white like he is. Trump wants to round up anyone, babies to adults, who were born here but whose parents are here either illegally or legally. It doesn't matter. And let's be sure to underscore children, too. Technically speaking, that could include my own father and his brothers, whose parents, my grandparents, were immigrants from Italy. This could easily encompass a full 12% of the American population, including members of Congress. The problem for Biff, however, is the fact that birthright citizenship is part of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Specifically, Section 1 reads, quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws." Trump will have to repeal Section 1 in order to do what he wants to do. And there's no chance whatsoever that such a repeal is possible, especially knowing the ideological makeup of the states, not to mention Democratic control of the House where an amendment would have to be ratified. He'd have to somehow repeal the amendment, but he won't. Here's what I think he'll do, though. He'll sign an executive order requiring ICE and CBP to deport children of Central American parents, parents who are either here illegally or or who entered the country, birthed a child or several, then returned to Central America. That's exactly who he's going to target. Naturally, the courts will strike down the order because it's flagrantly unconstitutional. But it won't matter. It'll be enacted long enough to strike terror into the hearts and minds of second-generation immigrants and their parents, while simultaneously fluffing his bigoted red hats who use deportations like this as masturbation fantasies. 
By the time the Supreme Court strikes it down, and the court will strike it down, including the wingnut justices, it'll be too late. Damage done, while the base relentlessly faps away. Between this, the family separations, the horrendous prison camps, and Trump's order allowing ICE to indefinitely detain migrant children, the ethnic cleansing only appears to be expanding to inflict further pain and suffering upon people who walked thousands of miles in some cases in order to attain the American dream, only to find tragedy and institutionalized cruelty. It'll never happen, but if everything were normal, Trump, Stephen Miller, John Kelly, Jeff Sessions, and any other architects of Trump's immigration policy ought to be sent before the International Criminal Court at The Hague on charges of crimes against humanity. Partly because it's true, and partly because I'm running out of patience for accountability for these rat bastards inside the American criminal justice system. One of the reasons accountability is failing here is that it's nearly impossible to keep up with each thing as it whizzes past our heads at light speed. As soon as we absorb Trump's derogatory marks about American Jews, we have no choice but to absorb Trump's snotty, childish behavior toward the Prime Minister of Denmark, of all people, over an idea that was probably floated to Trump as a joke. Speaking of which, I wish the prankster who suggested purchasing Greenland had instead suggested Wakanda the fictitious African nation in the Marvel movies. But we can't even have that, can we? Given the vast instability of the White House, it's a testament to the 10-year Obama economic expansion, the longest in history, by the way, that the whole shebang didn't crash and burn months ago. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Democrats in Congress appear to be engaged in a battle with the United States Supreme Court. Depending on which party you believe, the Democrats are either giving the justices a friendly warning or threatening the court. Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and four other Democratic senators have filed a brief in an upcoming Supreme Court hearing of a New York gun case. Democrats are advising the court to drop the case or face possible restructuring to reduce the influence of politics, an idea popular with the public. The senator's letter is, to put it politely, brassy. The letter says, quote, The Supreme Court is not well, and the public knows it. It says the NRA has an audience on the Supreme Court, making the court out of touch with the real world where the shooting continues, while 90% of us support common-sense gun laws, including universal background checks. The letter accuses the court's conservative majority of towing the corporate and Republican line in voting rights, gerrymandering and dark money, union power, pollution regulation, corporate liability, civil rights, and discrimination. In the words of the head of a group called Demand Justice, the Democrats filing with the Supreme Court that says all of those things is, quote, badass. The biggest Facebook advertiser for Trump's 2020 re-election campaign is the campaign itself. Rolling in dough, it spent millions on Facebook ads already as part of his re-election effort. The second biggest spender on Facebook ads for Trump is, however, a publication run by a Chinese religious cult called Falun Gong. That publication, the Epoch Times, distributed here in the U.S., has spent more than $1.5 million on pro-Trump Facebook ads just in the past six months. The publication is not just an investment for this bizarre sect. 
People who've worked there say Falun Gong is very much involved in the editorial content of the Epoch Times. Its content was designed to take on the Chinese government, and it stayed out of U.S. politics originally. Now, it's outspoken and then some for Donald Trump, promoting deep state conspiracy theories and railing against the fake news media because it thinks Trump is the key to bringing down the Chinese government it so detests. The Epoch Times has now run 11,000 Facebook ads here in the U.S. promoting Donald Trump. It has now made friends in QAnon and with the anti-vaxxers. The Epoch Media Group has now racked up 3 billion views on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter and has nearly cracked the top 10 among video creators on YouTube as it follows the instructions of its Falun Gong leader to, quote, become real media. To the more than 8 million people who've watched the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, none of this will be surprising. As was the case in that horrific accident 33 years ago, the Russian government is telling the world and its own people very little about the recent smaller nuclear reactor explosion along the Russian coast of the White Sea. This time, the reactor that exploded was not from a nuclear power plant, but from a nuclear-powered missile the Russians were testing. The night it happened, August 8th, radiation levels spiked in at least a 25-mile radius. That night, local television signals were interrupted for the better part of an hour, replaced by a blue screen. Later, Russian TV officials would call it a malfunction of the storm warning system. A text went out urging people to stay home because of a windstorm that never materialized. It was two days after the accident that the main government TV network, Channel One, spent 36 seconds on the story, and that was the only channel that even admitted something had happened. The next day, Russian scientists told their people that a small nuclear reactor had malfunctioned. People were not told it was from a test missile. People were not told it had exploded. But although the Russian news agency TASS had reported that radiation levels were normal near the accident site, they were not. And on the Sunday after the accident, the scientists said so. Russians were told that the shipping docks near the test site were closed because of a toxic waste spill, that it was not because of radiation. As with the Chernobyl disaster in 1986, each public government statement contradicted the one that preceded it. The village that had been told it would be evacuated, only to be told it then wouldn't, quickly sold out its supply of iodine tablets, which are taken to minimize radiation damage to the thyroid gland. In 1993, Russia adopted a constitution that prohibits the government from keeping the public in the dark about public health risks. That was a response to Chernobyl. But old Soviet habits are apparently hard to break, especially with a president who was once a KGB spy for the Soviets. To the Russian people, it felt like Chernobyl all over again. In the days that followed the explosion near Archangels, Russia, they were detecting radioactive iodine in the air over northern Norway. On the other side of the river that separates the two countries, at least seven Russians had died from the blast and radiation spiked to 16 times its normal level. Even the doctors and nurses who treated the injured are now being treated themselves for radiation exposure. They were among the citizens not told what had happened. 
and five of the medical professionals at the hospital where the injured were taken tell the independent Moscow Times they were instructed by government agents the day after the explosion to sign non-disclosure agreements not to share with the public what they had learned. The doctors and nurses had their suspicions, of course, when three injured men arrived at their hospital naked except for the plastic bags that contained them. But the medical staff was not warned they should protect themselves. The staff is furious, to say the least, quoting one of the doctors who continued, This is a public hospital. We weren't prepared for this, and other people could have been affected. The doctors prepared a list of questions for government officials, and they say not one of the questions got a clear answer. The medical professionals have been told they have cesium-137 in their muscle tissue are said to be as depressed as they are angry. But they have no case to take to court because Russian government agents have now recovered and destroyed all of the hospital's records about this incident. Quoting one of the doctors, 33 years later and our government hasn't learned a thing. They keep trying to hide the truth. There are hundreds of monitoring stations in countries around the world for measuring radiation. Some of them are in Russia. These monitoring stations are part of a global network to make sure the world's nations are adhering to a nuclear test ban treaty. Two of those Russian monitoring stations went offline two days after that missile exploded, the stations in northern Russia that were closest to the site of the explosion. Two days after that, two more monitoring stations farther away from the explosion also went offline. Russia blamed it on communication and network issues. Two of the four monitoring stations are now back online. Moscow has been every bit as secretive about the fire on one of its nuclear submarines on July 1st. That fire killed 14 sailors. Even more deeply disturbing, we do not know the condition of the nuclear reactor in that sunken sub as it sits on the ocean floor off the coast of Norway. It brings to mind the loss of 118 Russian sailors in the year 2000 on another sunken nuclear sub. Russia has had its share of nuclear accidents dating back to 1957, most of them covered up by the Kremlin. The cover-ups aren't working so well anymore. Friday, August 2nd, Trump pulls the U.S. out of a nuclear weapons treaty with Russia that was signed by President Reagan. August 8th, the Russians try to test launch what they hope will be the missile to end all missiles. And then on Monday, August 19th, freed from the treaty, the U.S. successfully test-launched a cruise missile that was banned 18 days ago, a treaty that had remained in place since 1988. The treaty was, according to the U.N. Secretary General, an invaluable break on nuclear war. Until the election of a man who helped to bring back the nuclear arms race. Until the election of a man who now holds our nuclear codes. This week, he's threatened tariffs and backed off pushing the world closer to a recession. He's berated his own Fed chairman for not cutting interest rates fast enough. He's virtually begged China's President Xi to meet for a trade deal, any trade deal, and Xi ignores him. He thinks the economic predictions of professionals reported by professionals is a conspiracy against him. He couldn't stop complaining about that Fox News poll and even threatened to cut Fox out of his debates. Tensions grow between the U.S. and Iran, North Korea continues to launch missiles. The Russians are trying to launch a new missile, and the U.S. is launching missiles now, too. And he wants to buy Greenland. So about that impeachment, 
The slow rolling momentum continued this week with the addition of a powerful friend for the impeachment movement in Congress. Ben Ray Lujan isn't just any Democratic lawmaker joining the 126 other members of the House who now favor impeachment. Lujan is important because he is the fourth highest ranking Democrat in the House, the highest ranking Democrat to come out in favor of impeaching this president, and because he has the ear of close ally and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Court maneuvers continue while the House is in recess. If those rulings come in time, televised hearings could begin in mid to late September. We have known since May of last year about Trump's plans to try to crush Planned Parenthood. This week, those plans became reality. It was in the middle of May 2018 when the Trump administration announced a new rule that would cut off federal money for Planned Parenthood or any organization that performs abortions or refers patients to a clinic that does. This week, Planned Parenthood made the sad announcement it will stop accepting federal funds rather than eliminate access to abortion. The Women's Health and Family Planning Group says it's pulling out of the Title X program, refusing to abide by what it calls a gag rule. Rather than silence itself about abortion, Planned Parenthood is foregoing tens of millions of dollars a year, forcing it to end family planning services, cancer screenings, and testing for venereal disease, cutbacks that will most certainly and severely hurt low-income Americans, minorities, and the uninsured. Planned Parenthood, on behalf of the government, has cared for the health of nearly half the people eligible for that help. In well over a hundred counties and about two dozen states from coast to coast, Planned Parenthood is the only full-service birth control clinic available. Abortion services make up only 3% of the organization's work since it is a full-service health care provider. Planned Parenthood is lobbying in the Capitol and fighting in the courts to strike down the Trump gag rule so it can once again accept the federal funding that allows it to provide health care to millions of women. What it will not do is remove abortion services from that complete list. In the meantime, Planned Parenthood will rely on the kindness of strangers, knowing that even a flurry of grants and donations will not replace the tens of millions of dollars it's now losing. In New Hampshire, Planned Parenthood has lost its state funding along with the federal money. The state's health department in New Hampshire is failing to take up the slack because it has no budget. The state's lawmakers tried to fix that, but were sent back to the drawing board by New Hampshire's Republican governor, Chris Sununu. Thanks to funding cuts for both Planned Parenthood and the state's own health department, New Hampshire's chlamydia rate is up 17% over the past five years. The syphilis rate is up 103%. The gonorrhea rate in New Hampshire is up 352%. New Hampshire has gonorrhea thanks to Republican lawmakers cutting public health money and money for Planned Parenthood. The New York City cop who had Eric Garner in a chokehold when Garner died has been fired. The decision came this week, five years after Garner's death on a public sidewalk as he sold loose cigarettes. Although he's been confined to a desk job, then Officer Daniel Pantaleo continued to draw his pay, benefits, and build his pension over these five years of due process. And despite Mr. Garner's repeated cries of I can't breathe, and despite Pantaleo's disregard of department rules on chokeholds, a state grand jury decided not to press charges against him. Over the objections of civil rights investigators, the Justice Department 
decided not to press charges against that officer. But Pantaleo may find himself in court again now that he's a private citizen. Meanwhile, in Colorado Springs, a 19-year-old black man was shot in the back three times as he ran away from the officers asking him about reports of someone with a gun. He was handcuffed by police before they asked for a medical kit. As it turns out, neither one was needed. Two of the bullets had pierced the young man's left lung, the third had pierced his heart, and he died. Police say a gun was recovered at the scene, and they say Devon Bailey was reaching for it when they shot him. Witnesses say the video proves otherwise. In California this week, Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law a bill aimed at curtailing police use of deadly force. The Trump administration also this week made its most aggressive move ever against transgender Americans. It asked the U.S. Supreme Court to legalize the firing of transgender workers because they are transgender. The administration filed a brief with the high court that federal law already allows the firing of workers just for being transgender. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 does not define the word sex for legal purposes, leaving LGBTQ workers in limbo, if not completely unprotected. Courts have often used Title VII to protect these workers, but those rulings could now unravel if the administration gets its way. Christian conservatives, and now the Trump administration, are working in court to make sure that the community remains unprotected by the civil rights hiring laws. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear three different cases concerning LGBTQ citizens, including one involving a transgender worker. The court's decision could affect state laws nationwide that include transgender people in their enforcement of anti-discrimination laws. Civil rights lawyers also warn that the administration is, in effect, asking the court to rule that sexual stereotyping by employers is not illegal. In 1989, an employee sued Price Waterhouse, claiming she wasn't promoted because she didn't appear feminine enough, a standard that could be used to discriminate against women as well as transgenders if the administration gets its way. It could erode protections for men with long hair and women with short hair and women who wear pants. So this is making America great again. The economy's on edge. The country's on edge from gun violence. Thousands are still kept in cages and the environmental abuse continues. And as I said before, tensions grow between the U.S. and Iran, North Korea launching missiles, the Russians trying to launch a new missile, the U.S. launching missiles now too, and he wants to buy Greenland. It has been confirmed that not only did Trump press his top aides to see if the U.S. could buy the ice-covered island of Greenland from the Danish, the probing of that idea continued even after it had been publicly ridiculed or written off as a joke. Not all of Trump's aides were taking him seriously on this, but some did. Trump's reportedly gone on about buying Greenland for weeks now, calling it a great real estate deal. He's not the first president to covet Greenland, and there is tactical value in that island, being closer than the U.S. to Russia and China. It's why China is bankrolling three airports in Greenland right now. It's why the U.S. already has a military base there. And Greenland's melting ice is opening up new shipping lanes. Kaching. These are also the reasons that Russia and China are interested in Greenland, too. While the Trump administration busied itself with the task of finding out how much Greenland would cost, 
where the money would come from and whether buying it is legal and whether to make Greenlanders U.S. citizens. Officials in both Denmark and Greenland have made it clear Greenland is not for sale. Trump was set to visit Denmark in about 10 days from now. Maybe he could change their minds. The Fox Business Channel suggested that perhaps Denmark really is for sale, but just holding out for a higher price. But when it was made clear to Trump that Denmark and Greenland would never agree to this great real estate deal, Trump abruptly called off his trip. As it turns out, he wasn't visiting Denmark to thank it for its support of the U.S. during 9-11, in which it lost 50 soldiers as it supported our efforts in the Persian Gulf. No, he only wanted it for its Greenland. Officials in Denmark were insulted and outraged, and they have spent the past few days making that indelibly clear. Trump says the Danish prime minister's response was a nasty remark about his interest in the purchase of Greenland. She had called his proposal absurd. Trump thought that was nasty, and he called the head of a NATO ally nasty. Now Trump is not going to Denmark, and he's not going to buy Greenland. All of this no doubt pleases Vladimir Putin, who likes anything that drives a wedge between NATO partners like the U.S. and, of all places, Denmark. Danish officials are described as angry, disrespected, and insulted, one calling Trump a spoiled child. Hashtag art of the deal. Hashtag, that went well. He'll do better this weekend at the G7 summit, where he will argue that Russia should be allowed back in. There's something else that's worth knowing for Americans about what's buried beneath the ice cap of Greenland. And because that ice cap is melting, what is about to be exposed is a dark secret not of Russia's, but of the United States. It was so secret that for years, even Greenland didn't know it was there. In 1959, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers dug out a place called Camp Century to work on a top-secret military project for the Cold War of the 1960s. That project included toxic chemicals, and it was powered by a nuclear generator. The first mobile nuclear generator powered what became known as the City Under Ice, complete with laboratories, a hospital, a movie theater, a chapel, a place to shop, and housing for up to 200 soldiers. Unfortunately for Camp Century, ice shifts and moves, making being underground there impractical. The idea wasn't going to work. After 1964, the city under ice was buried, presumably along with its nuclear fuel and toxic waste. What could possibly go wrong is climate change, melting the ice, and threatening to expose that dangerous little underground city. The U.S. has promised to help Greenland in the event anything toxic or radioactive shows up. More about the melting of Greenland and you, plus Texas accidentally legalizes weed, 32 rubber ducks, and because taco in the final segment after this. This is the part where I invite your help. You're listening at this crucial time in our history because you know the importance of honest, independent journalism and how important it is to support it. I'd be very grateful if you'd stop by my webpage, buzzburbank.com, and click that gold donate button, which helps cover expenses for server fees, subscriptions, professional broadcast equipment, and its upkeep. You'll find other useful stuff there on my page as well. Your support is what keeps this newscast going, keeping it independent and free for the listening. If you're able, you can do as others have done and schedule a regular monthly donation or just kick in something when you can. 
on your desktop browser, that gold donate button's on the upper right at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just above the title Buzzburbank News and Comment. Thank you to those of you who support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Greenland broke temperature records this spring and summer. It's not supposed to be 75 in Greenland. Greenland is ice and Iceland is green, they told us. Now, Iceland is even greener and Greenland is melting. Greenland lost 12.5 billion tons of ice in just a single day, the second day of this month. It was the biggest one-day loss of ice in recorded history. At this rate, the melting of Greenland alone would raise sea levels by 25 feet, destroying coastal area homes around the world. When a chunk of ice the size of a soccer field breaks away from Greenland, as it does, as it did this summer, it sounds like an explosion even from five miles away. And yes, Iceland is melting too. Icelanders staged a kind of funeral ceremony Sunday on what was once a glacier, and they placed there a plaque commemorating the first loss of a glacier to global warming. The plaque included the date, of course, but also that day's CO2 level and the ominous warning, in the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. And while the wildfires continue in the Arctic, they continue also in Brazil's Amazon rainforest, also at a record rate. There have been nearly 73,000 fires in Brazil this year, more than half in and around the Amazon. That's an 80% increase in fires since last year. It's the most fires since they started tracking them six years ago. Here's the bigger problem. About half the size of the U.S., the Amazon region is often referred to as the world's lungs. That rainforest produces 20% of the oxygen in our atmosphere. Smoke from wildfires now covers half of Brazil, and it's drifting a 1,000 miles away over Peru, Bolivia, and Paraguay. Brazil's president and ours have much in common when it comes to industry versus nature. But Brazil has our lungs. Sweat much? It has been a miserably hot summer for tens of millions of Americans, and it has indeed been hot with some temperatures over 100. But we haven't broken many records in the U.S. this year for temperature daily. So why has it seemed so much hotter? As the saying goes, it's the humidity. That's why the heat index has now become more important than the temperature as the planet warms. Europe did break a lot of heat records this year, but it was, as they say, a dry heat. It doesn't get as humid in Europe as it does here, with much of our country situated between the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. As these oceans warm, they produce more humidity to sweep up the Midwest and across the Deep South. The Gulf is, in fact, one degree warmer this summer than it was last year, and therefore producing more humidity. The more humidity, the harder it is for our sweat to evaporate, so it runs into our eyes and soaks our clothing instead. This July, we now know, was officially the hottest month in our recorded history. Not just the hottest July, the hottest month ever on the heels of the hottest June ever. And it was the fifth straight year for record-breaking heat in July. So it is the heat, but it's also the humidity. Scientists say nighttime isn't drying the air the way it used to 
because the nights have gotten warmer too. Climate experts say we can expect these heat index events to double in duration as the planet and its water get warmer. The increased heat and humidity is making life harder in the concrete jungle. Cities are scrambling for ways to deal with the heat that gets trapped in the streets and sidewalks and buildings, radiating that heat even at night. Researchers predict that by 2080, the climate in Washington, D.C. will feel more like Dallas or Mississippi. New York City will feel more like Northeast Arkansas did. Philadelphia will feel like Memphis. Houston and Miami will feel as it feels deep into Mexico. The average temperature in Fairbanks, Alaska is expected to rise in that time by 12 degrees. Winters will get wetter in the nation's capital, 70% wetter, leaving that city more often paralyzed by snowfalls and floods. Summers will be wetter too, as D.C. becomes a delta city with heavy rainfall. And now it faces the year-round threat of flooding from its two tidal rivers, the Potomac and the Anacostia. D.C. city officials are now focusing on shelter from the weather for those who need it as the number of heat emergency days soar. At the same time, they're talking about reducing the number of buildings in the city and requiring new buildings to meet tougher building codes and requiring existing buildings to be retrofitted to combat heat and rising water. Even the right landscaping helps, giving the water a useful place to go. The plants also help fight the heat, and they're being planted along D.C. curbs as we speak. The Tree Foundation is advising the concrete jungles of Dallas and Phoenix to break up some of that pavement and put in trees and other growth instead. Phoenix has been told it needs to plant a quarter of a million trees inside its city limits. It may not be a quarter million, but Phoenix says it will start adding trees. Steps are being taken in Houston and San Antonio as well, but Dallas officials are described as waiting for things to get worse before taking any action. The length of summer weather in Dallas is expected to double by the end of the century. No stock plummeted more this week so much as the stock in General Electric. GE fell harder than most and for an unexpected reason. The same whistleblower who exposed Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme has now accused GE of massive fraud and predicted that this revelation would, quote, make this company probably file for bankruptcy. Financial investigator Henry Markopoulos says GE's $38 billion in accounting fraud makes this, quote, far more serious than Enron or WorldCom accounting frauds. Enron and WorldCom lasted four months after exposure, says Markopoulos, adding, we'll see how GE does. Markopoulos also accuses GE of stock market manipulation. Bernie Madoff, by the way, was sentenced to 150 years in prison. But there was encouraging news this week that was as big as it was surprising. Because they can smell the villagers burning torches and see the prongs of their pitchforks against the skyline, corporate America is pondering how to save itself. There was a business roundtable this week representing nearly 200 of the nation's top companies. And nearly all of the representatives signed a statement in that meeting saying that making money for the stockholders is not a company's only job. Indeed, said this joint statement, companies must also serve their communities, their employers, their suppliers, and of course their customers. 
it was not in an alternate universe that the head of J.P. Morgan Chase had written in a letter to his shareholders, many Americans are struggling. Too often, hard work is not rewarded. Now, whether you believe Wall Street or Jamie Dimon or not, all of this is considered a sign that corporate America sees trouble on the horizon from the villagers who are both divided and angry, and business realizes it has to change to survive. It is, however, a ray of hope for higher wages, closing pay gaps, even helping the environment and climate change, which was included in that joint corporate statement. This week, even corporate America agreed it's time for a change. Health officials are now investigating more than 150 cases of a lung illness that's been tied to the use of e-cigarettes. Many of the sick are in hospitals, some in intensive care, some are on ventilators. Doctors don't yet know if the victims will get well or whether they will get completely well. Their lungs are injured, damaged. The outbreak of whatever this is has reached at least 14 states. Symptoms include breathing difficulty, shortness of breath, chest pains, and perhaps fever, a cough, vomiting, and diarrhea. The Centers for Disease Control is looking for a common thread in addition to vaping that ties these cases together. The source appears to be vaping pens bought on the street, often containing THC. You may not vape. You may not drink even the green tea. And you may not consume any beverage ending with Chino if you are a member of the church still known as the Mormons. Coffee, tea, and caffeine in general have always been verboten, as have been smoking and alcohol consumption. But the modern age has forced the church to be more specific in its shall nots. The new guidance for the deep breath, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, says that if it ends in Chino, it probably contains coffee. No cheating. The church is now being besieged with questions like, what about coffee-flavored desserts that contain little or no caffeine? The church's response, when in doubt, rule it out. The church also forbids recreational marijuana, of course, but says pot and opioids are fine if they are prescribed by a doctor. The Mormons are still teetering on weed. The church has publicly said it approves of medical marijuana while simultaneously opposing a medical marijuana bill in the Utah legislature. The news rocked Texas like an Oklahoma earthquake. Was it true? Had the Lone Star State's Republican governor signed a bill passed by the state's Republican legislature that accidentally legalized the possession and sale of marijuana? Back in May, Texas lawmakers overwhelmingly passed a bill to legalize the agricultural possession, sale, and transport of hemp. How would they know the difference between hemp and marijuana? THC content, the stuff that produces the high. If a truck full of cannabis had less than three-tenths of one percent THC by weight, then it's hemp and it's legal. If it contains more than three-tenths of a percent THC, it's the demon weed and someone must be punished. Just one problem. Texas law enforcement has no way to measure the THC content in harvested cannabis plants. That's made prosecutors stop prosecuting cases they could very well lose. Texas is now scrambling to acquire the necessary equipment. So are officials in Ohio, Virginia, Tennessee, and Florida, where other Republican lawmakers have fallen through the same trapdoor. 
Border officers at the San Diego checkpoint this week seized nearly four tons of incoming marijuana that had been concealed in a shipment of jalapenos, spicy weed. ABC Television was ordered this week to pay nearly $400,000 in fines after an episode of Jimmy Kimmel Live aired a sketch last October that used the new presidential alert tone three times. The FCC also fined The Walking Dead just over $100,000 for using the tone in two scenes in February. Animal Planet will pay a $68,000 fine for its show Lone Star State Law's use of the tone. And a radio station owner in California was fined sixty-seven dollars for doing the same. All of the companies were forced to sign an agreement to strictly abide in the future by the ban against the misuse of those new presidential alert tones. An exact replica of the Aston Martin sports car driven by Sean Connery in the James Bond movie Goldfinger has just been sold at an auction in California. It has nearly all of the same gadgets, including the revolving license plates, the nail dispensers for the tires of the bad guys chasing you, a bulletproof shield, and of course, machine guns in the front. This duplicate of what has been called the most famous car in the world was not in Goldfinger, but was created to promote the following Bond movie, Thunderball. Other duplicates of the car were used in subsequent Bond films, including as recently as 2015. Made in 1965, this Aston Martin was completely refurbished in 2012. Auctioneers were expecting the car to sell for between 4 and $6 million. It sold for $6.5 million. We lost actor and counterculture hero Peter Fonda this week. The star of the iconic late 60s film Easy Rider died this past week from lung cancer. Peter Fonda got an Oscar nod for Best Actor for his role as a beekeeper in Yuli's Gold. Sister Jane Fonda said, He was my sweethearted baby brother. I had beautiful alone time with him these last days. He went out laughing. The R-rated comedy Good Boys is this week's top movie with $21 million in what's been a quiet week for theaters. And although Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has fallen out of the top 10 now, it has just crossed the $200 million mark in worldwide ticket sales, and it's just opened in Europe, meaning this number will go much higher. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is expected to be a Quentin Tarantino's second biggest worldwide hit. It's expected to land right behind Django Unchained, which grossed over $425 million. To find out what's showing and what's new, and for tickets, please click very hard on the Fandango button at buzzburbank.com. On a highway south of Seattle, a state trooper pulled over to assist what he believed was a driver with a disabled vehicle. What the officer found in the lap of the driver was a blue foam pad with notches cut out of it that held eight cell phones. The driver had pulled over to use those eight phones simultaneously to play Pokemon Go. The patrolman advised the driver to put the spongy phone rack in the back seat and resume driving since the shoulder is for emergency use only. No word if the officer bothered to ask the young man why he had eight phones. If you want to know what life was like in Derry, New Hampshire 50 years ago, their time capsule sure won't help. 
sealed in 1969. Town officials opened the time capsule this week only to find it was empty. And since there is no list of what was put inside the time capsule, the supposition now is nothing was put into the time capsule in the first place. From our Dogs Will Eat Anything department, Devil, the American bulldog that lives with a woman in Thailand, is recovering nicely after surgery to remove 32 rubber ducks from his belly. She'd taken him to the vet after he threw up five other rubber ducks. The owner had just purchased a box of 50 little ducks for her pool. Devil had eaten 37 of them and part of a rubber ball. In Alaska, a moose crashed a backyard pool party, had a drink from the pool, and stole a taco from the food table. In Deltona, Florida, a raccoon made its way into a vending machine where it ate snacks and took naps until animal control carried it back into the wild. A New York couple say their luxurious Florida vacation home smells like a thousand rotting corpses. They're talking about the dozens of black vultures that have taken over their country club property, busting through the screen enclosure to make themselves at home around the pool and on their barbecue. Trapped inside the enclosure, the birds banged into the sides of the house and against the windows, leaving blood everywhere. The vultures also do a lot of pooping and vomiting. And it smelled like a thousand rotting corpses, they say. The couple put up some of those fake owls, including the ones with the blinking eyes and rotating heads. The vultures ripped the fake owls apart. A trio of police officers arrived. They removed the screens and shooed the vultures away. The couple puts much of the blame on a next-door neighbor who's been feeding the vultures, providing them with dog food and, on at least one occasion, a roasted chicken. Pooper, meat trooper. In Johnson County, Indiana, State Police Sergeant Stephen Wheels was cruising I-65 when something flew out of the backseat window of the car in front of him and struck his car. The patrol car was not damaged, but the driver did get a ticket. The object tossed from the car was a soiled diaper. The public toilets in a town in Wales are self-cleaning. They close themselves for 10 minutes a day, wherein they spray themselves down internally with cleansers and water fired from jets. Turns out those water jets have other uses. The public toilets in Porthcalls Griffin Park, at a cost of nearly a quarter million dollars, are now set to stop both vandalism and people having sex inside those small lavatories. The weight-sensitive floor, detecting the presence of more than one person, causes the lavatory to shake violently, sound alarms, douse the occupants with streams of water, and pop open the door for the world to see. If someone tries sleeping inside one of these things, lights and sirens go off after a period of time. Smoking is prohibited in the park. These pricey porta-potties will douse and expose smokers too when the smoke detector goes off. Care to object? The lavatories are also graffiti-proof. And finally, it was just a few days before the annual taco truck throwdown in Fresno, California, when the local minor league baseball team decided to hold a warm-up. 
Last year at the event's taco eating championship, professional contest eater Jeffrey Esper chomped through 73 tacos in eight minutes. That's the same Jeffrey Esper who came in third in this year's Nathan's hot dog eating contest. Well, the excitement in Fresno was palpable because tacos. So on the Tuesday before the weekend event, the Fresno Grizzlies had their own taco eating contest at the ballpark. 41-year-old Dana Hutchings immediately caught the judge's attention. He was eating so fast, it was like he'd never eaten before, says an eyewitness, shoving the tacos down his mouth without chewing. Seven minutes in, Dana Hutchings did a face plant into a plateful of taco debris. He died shortly after arrival at the hospital. Thanks to the tragedy at the ballpark, the city's taco-eating championship was canceled and was not held as planned on Saturday. Quoting the Guardian story on this, it was not immediately clear how many tacos the man had eaten or whether he had won the contest. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.